She's a retired law enforcement officer, retired to the rank as commander of the Special Investigations and Forensics Units of the Fairfax County Police Department. She was actively involved in the public information officer during the Beltway Snipers. Welcome to the Law Enforcement Today radio show. I'm your host. My name's John J. Wiley. In addition to being a radio broadcaster, I'm a retired police sergeant. For the latest news articles and much more, check out our website, letradioshow.com. In the Law Enforcement Today show, we'll be joined by special guests. We'll be talking about their experiences and issues affecting law enforcement officers, first responders, their families, their community, and victims of horrendous crimes. Be sure to like us on Facebook. Our page is Law Enforcement Today Radio Show. Check out the daily articles on our website, letradioshow.com. And while you're there, download our free app. The Law Enforcement Today show is brought to you by 4Patriots.com. That's number 4Patriots.com. They offer the world's best survival food, the Patriot Power Generator 2000X and more. And right now, you can go to 4Patriots.com and use code LET to get 10% off your first purchase on anything in the store. You'll also get their famous guarantee for an entire year after your order. Plus, free shipping on orders over $97 and a portion of every sale is donated to charities who support our veterans and their families. Just go to 4Patriots.com. That's a number 4Patriots.com. Use code LET to get 10% off. Joining us on the Law Enforcement Today show from the Phoenix, Arizona area, we have Isabella Maldonado on the phone. Isabella is a retired captain from the Fairfax County, Virginia Police Department. She was the commander of the Special Investigations and Forensics Unit when she retired. So she's been in a full career. And part of her career... Everybody starts as a police officer, works their way up. Part of her career was as a public information officer, especially during the Beltway Snipers. Isabel, thanks for your service, number one. Thanks for being guest on the Law Enforcement Today show. Very much appreciated. It is a pleasure to be here. One of the things that, and, and Fairfax is not terribly far from Baltimore, but it's night and day difference. And I want people to understand something. You know, Fairfax has a reputation of being a little bit more higher income, but it is a big department and it has all the big department issues and high crime that goes along with it. Is that a fair assessment? Yes, actually, um, Fairfax County Police Department is the largest police department in the state of Virginia. And uh, by the way, Virginia is a great, uh, great state, a big state. I, I spent <laughs> much of my life there as a kid before my dad, I'm a Navy brat, so my dad was stationed in Norfolk and we spent many, most of my developing years in the Norfolk, Virginia Beach area. I've always loved Virginia. Virginia and Maryland are always a a close toss-up for me, except in the wintertime, and except when it comes to taxes. I'll take Florida over that anytime. (laughs) Well, I always joke that everyone who retires from back east, when you retire, you have two choices. You can either go to Florida or Arizona. So um, I chose Arizona. You obviously chose Florida. Yeah. How do you like Arizona? Is it is it appealing to you? Is it fitting you? I love Arizona. It's it's really really great. Um, I think it's just I, it's got a cool desert Southwest vibe to it that I really do enjoy. And do you? I got to ask you this because people ask me all the time. Do you miss being a cop? And I tell them in the very beginning I did because my career was cut short at thirty three and I wasn't expecting. I wanted to do 20, 20 25 years. I was retired at 33 years of age, and I miss it tremendously. I don't now. Do you miss it? Um, 
Not anymore, but there was a huge adjustment period. I, I totally understand what you're saying. It's a big, big transition. So part of what you do now, and we'll talk about this later, is you have a passion for writing books. And you've got numerous books you've written. Go online to her website, IsabellaMaldonado.com. You get all the information there, and we'll talk about those a little bit later. One of the things that a lot of people don't understand, myself included, is the role of the public information officer. Now, a lot of people misconstrue something. Police are not... It's frowned on if you talk to the media. It's frowned on if you're a police officer, sergeant, lieutenant, and it's a PIO's role because we don't want conflicting information getting out there. Is that a fair assessment? Um, I think it's, well, it's it's accurate that, yes, that the police do tend to look at you like, you know, really whose camp are you in or something like that. And it's, it's a lot of misconception that um, all of us who've ever had to work in PIO have have fought to try to, you know, to fight back against that because it's really a very necessary thing to be able to establish relationships with the media. And it's also a high-pressure situation that I never really appreciated. As a police officer, as a street cop, whether I was a police officer or sergeant uh, when I retired, I never totally understood what the, the public information officers did. And for some reason, I always thought they had it easy. And there's other branches of police work that I feel the same way about. And usually, and I, I hate to say this, usually it's because I don't see things from their perspective. I see things from my perspective. Absolutely. And when we get into the case that we're going to talk about, you might even have more of an appreciation. Um, I think especially a lot of uh, PIOs, it seems like the, the trend these days is to civilianize the position. But when I was there, I was glad that it was all still at that point, mostly uh, sworn law enforcement. Um, at the time I was heading up the, um, the PIO, I was a lieutenant at the time. I think that's very important because you can give a different perspective to the public when you've actually done the job, when you've gone out there and you've dealt with um, these kinds of situations, when you end up talking about it in front of a camera, you can speak with a totally different level of experience and credibility when you're in the uniform. Well, the other thing that helps is you're not a hothead. See, that's why I could never do that, because I would wind up losing it on people left and right. Uh, and I'd have no patience with news media, news reporters asking the same question over and over and over again. Was that something that you had to learn to get better at, or is that a natural skill set you had, that patience? It's a little bit of both, um, but you do learn to get um, to get better at it. And also, you learn to deal with different reporters differently, and some of them will approach things differently than others. And you also can kind of learn, you know, where you might be able to extend a little bit more trust. And I can go into some of the details about that, too, when I talk about this particular case that we're going to talk about, um, because there were times where I had to kind of be like, can I go off the record with this person or are they going to burn me? What's going to happen? And it was... Um, it was really, it was just a, an amazing time. And actually, during that time period, dealing with the media, we all were kind of on the same team because everybody was just being, the whole area was being terrorized. Well, for those who, who don't know what we're talking about, we're talking about the Beltway Snipers. And that the entire media, not just of the, the D.C., Baltimore, Virginia news 
group, but the entire news media was focused on this because they had snipers that were going around shooting people, killing people, and it, was, it, it seemed to be random. And for a long time, what people didn't see was... And, and I'm not saying this is a reflection of made. They didn't see action by the police, and they didn't understand why you couldn't give them more information. Do you recall mm-hmm. what years that was? Oh, there was in like the early 90s. I want to say like 92, 93, actually, yeah. something like that. And I yeah. do remember some names that popped up. Charles Moose was the chief. Oh, police. yeah, Chief Moose. Yeah, yes, and there's a, some other yeah. ones. And look, mm-hmm. we've had people on a show retired Maryland State Police Lieutenant was involved in the investigation. He wrote a book about it. He was a great, mm-hmm. great interview. But we've never had someone that worked as a PIO. Now, you said you were a lieutenant. So, you were not a rookie. You were not brand new at this no. policing gig. No. No. As a matter of fact, I was the commander of the public information office at that time. So, that was my... I had several staff working under me. I was in charge of the PIO at that point. So, yes. So, you had to be the buffer between the command staff and Mm -hmm. the news media, because I'm sure the news media was relentless about it. Oh, you have no idea, but you're going to by the time we're done talking. Right. (laughs) Yes. Right. When people ask me questions like, I'm some sort of expert about that, I don't, I didn't didn't know, I didn't have answers about these Beltway snipers, like, what is going on? I don't know. (laughs) Nothing prepared me in police work for that kind of carnage and for spread over a, a long period of time and various multiple jurisdictions. We're talking with Isabella Maldonado. Isabella is a retired captain from the Fairfax County, Virginia Police Department. She's also author of multiple books. Go to her website, IsabellaMaldonado.com. Get more details. When we return, we're going to start talking about the Beltway Snipers, her role in the investigation and reporting and more. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. National security experts are warning our aging power grid is more vulnerable than ever. Imagine a blackout lasting not days, but weeks or months. Your life would be frozen in time right at the moment the power fails. Lights all over the country go out, throwing people into total darkness. That's why having your own solar power is more important than ever. With the new Patriot Power Generator 2000X, you get a solar generator that doesn't install into your house because it's portable. You can take it with you, even use it inside. But it's powerful enough for your phones, medical devices, or even your fridge. And right now, you can go to 4 and use code LET to get 10% off your first purchase on anything in a store, including the Patriot Power Generator. You'll also get their famous guarantee for an entire year after your order. Plus, free shipping on orders over $97, and a portion of every sale is donated to charities who support our veterans and their families. Just go to 4Patriots.com. That's number 4Patriots.com, and use code LET to get 10% off. That's 4Patriots.com. Use code LET to get yours today. Turn a conversation on the law enforcement today's show with Isabella Maldonado. I feel so sophisticated when I say your name, Isabella. It's almost like 
all of a sudden I'm multilingual, which I'm not. Uh, she's a retired <laughs> Fairfax County police captain. She retired as commander of special investigations and forensics. She was a lieutenant in charge of the public information office during the Beltway Snipers incident. And by the way, Isabella stays very busy writing lots of books. She's got so many. Go to her website, IsabellaMaldonado.com, and get more information. Isabella, I'm going to jump right into the Beltway Snipers. You were the lieutenant in charge of the public information offices for Fairfax County Police Department. Now, people need to understand Fairfax is a suburb of D.C., so it's a high power, high pressure area. And then we get all these news organizations involved. They they had to be handing you left and right. So there was a day before this occurred and then a day when things started happening. Could you start with how you found out and take it from there? Well, um, it didn't start in Fairfax County. It, um, if memory serves, it, I think the first one was in Montgomery County, which is how Chief Charles Moose kind of ended up um, in front and center as far as the media went. And um, they were some of the first cases. And then it sort of, we all were paying attention because it was such a bizarre thing to have a sniper take someone out like that. And so then as it evolved, and then it started moving around, and then there was shootings in D.C. and then shootings in Virginia. And so then it really, once it really started taking over, the entire metropolitan Washington, D.C., tri-state area all became involved. What I found really challenging um, as far as the media goes is because it's the nation's capital, Reporters came from all over the world, not just all over the country. They literally were there all over the world. And by the time that, you know, someone was killed in Fairfax County, who um, the, it was a woman, by the way, who was um, an FBI analyst. She was a civilian FBI employee working as an analyst and was just going about her business shopping at a store. And when she came out, she was hit. But I had a real sense of how of how much the entire world had become fascinated by this case. When I was speaking in front of reporters, it got to the point where literally there must have been a hundred reporters there. I'd never seen that many at one scene. And when I heard them with all their foreign accents, sometimes speaking in foreign languages, they would turn to their camera and do their their whatever they were going to say, then they would turn to me and ask me a question. When one of them called me Lieutenant, <laughs> that's another clue yeah, I had. that's a that clue we you are, deal yeah. with someone from yeah. Europe. That, we don't yeah. use that term, Lieutenant, at all. That's right. I know. I do, you know. And, um, but it was just, I didn't realize how much it took the world by storm. And and now, even when, I mean, I speak to different audiences overseas about my books and things, and whenever I mention the Beltway Sniper case, it almost seems like no matter where I am, people have heard of it, if you're of a certain age. Well, you know, two so things. The ones that Number one is, I think it really, uh, and for me, it really nailed down a fear factor because you couldn't see who was shooting it. It didn't matter if you had your head in a swivel and you're doing all the right things. You could be walking to your car. You could be mowing your lawn. And these these two guys, and I'm going to give away a little bit. You, you can tell that part a little mm-hmm. bit later on. Mm-hmm. They, they start taking pop shots at people. And so there's a fear factor, number one. The number two, so it's like, could it happen to me? 
and what's driving mm-hmm. this. The other one was this is pre two thousand. This is pre nine eleven. Yeah, uh, and we really, as a nation, or I should say, as an individual, we really weren't paying much attention to terrorism, and this mm-hmm. kind of. Spe- kind of sparked that fear as well. Is this a terrorist mm-hmm. act? Are these organized terrorists doing this? Well, I believe with terror is terror. It doesn't matter if it's politically sponsored or by an outside entity. So I'd call them terrorists. Mm-hmm. Lastly, the amount of pressure on the departments to give information must have been nonstop for you. I have some, <clears throat> definitely have some stories about, about that. Um, but first, I guess, to just make people truly understand in case you either have forgotten because it's been a long time or maybe you weren't um, around during when this all was happening. But what was going on, you talk about the it seemed to be random. This is the interesting point is that it turned out that it was and that was the point of it. And so going back to to what you were talking about, this was so challenging for law enforcement because it was unlike anything that we had seen before. So normally you think of, okay, there's, it's like a serial killer, you think to yourself, you know, and so it started with... um, there would be the, the JOC and the JIC, so the Joint Operations Center and the Joint Information Centers. The, the two of these huge fusion centers were set up in Montgomery County, and um, there would be law enforcement from every kind of agency, all the entire alphabet, everybody that, that you can imagine, because again, it's the nation's capital, so it takes on a different kind of um, threat level. But everybody's in there, and I was involved I would be in the information center, but we'd also go back and forth with the operations center because you would need to make sure that you were reporting out accurately and not uh, talking at cross purposes that would harm the investigation. And so being privy to everything that was going on, it was a full court press on the part of law enforcement. Whatever it seemed like to the public, it was absolutely every, it was all hands on deck. It was 24 seven and it was a momentous amount of work that went into it. And part of the issue was when you first would start to extrapolate what was going on, you would look for a pattern. I mean, this is what we do in law enforcement. You see a series of things happen. And one of the things that you do is you try to find the nexus between either the victims or the location or the methodology or whatever, so that you can use that to start zeroing in on who the suspect is. Well, in this case, we couldn't find an access because very quickly we found out that it was young people, it was old people, male, female, every race, every religion, everything you could possibly imagine. And we were all just flummoxed. It was like, what? There's no pattern. What's going on? It wasn't until later, after the capture, that we were able to really get a sense of. And actually, even even during the investigation, when he started leaving those weird notes, and, and I'll get into that, too. But we started getting the idea of, okay, what he is trying to do. And I say he, because I'm focusing on the older of the two, because he was really calling the shots. It was really his his brainchild it was he was the mastermind um the other the the young the the boy was just really a tool that he was using um that the adult was the one who was calling the shots so um but his point was to cause terror and the best way to cause terror is to make everybody think that they could be a target they could be next 
That, it, that's they the absolute be, no terrifying who part. who you are. Yes. And the other thing, too, was the the nature of the attacks. And, you know, this did all come out eventually, is that he wanted to make a point that it doesn't matter what you're doing, you go about your normal business. In other words, a guy was cut uh, was cutting his grass when I'm he was take shot. A short he break. Was we are talking lawn. with Isabella Maldonado. We're talking about the Beltway Sniper case. Her role in it. We've got so much more to talk about. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. I have some exciting news to share with you. You are going to love my Your Diet Do-Over Do-It-Yourself course on HarmonyWithFood.com, which means you could do everything at your own pace. I put my heart and soul into this course. Have you been on every diet there is only to gain the weight back? If your relationship with food is, well, not that good, you should purchase the Your Diet Do-Over course. Go over to HarmonyWithFood.com, click the Your Diet Do-Over tab and get started today. You can find us on Facebook. Just search for the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show and be sure to click like. Return our conversation with Isabella Maldonado. Isabella is retired captain from Fairfax County, Virginia Police Department. She retired as a captain or commander of special investigations and forensics. She was lieutenant, not a lieutenant, a lieutenant in charge of public information offices during this Beltway Sniper's reign of terror. And it's the only way I can describe it as a reign of terror. And for those you don't know, uh, check past episodes of the Law Enforcement Day show talking about the Beltway Snipers. You can do a Google search, and it truly was a horrifying time. The exact numbers escaped me of how many people were killed, how many people were shot and injured. But I believe it went from the northern Richmond suburbs all the way up to about Montgomery County, Maryland, where their reign of terror encompassed that whole area. Am I wrong? No, that's right. That's right. And before we get into their capture, one of the things that happens, and I got this question all the time from people, how come the police, they make make it sound like police are bumbling idiots. How come the police aren't telling anything? How come they're not doing this? And then some information came out about a white van. Remember that? The white vans and everybody's on the lookout for white construction vans. And that was false information. That was not correct. But that's the kind of information we don't want getting out there because it sparks even more panic on people. Exactly. The white van was my particular nemesis. Um, it really came back, came back to bite me in particular. And, and here's, here's kind of how. Looking back on it in, in retrospect, if you think about it, these white panel vans, they're ubiquitous. They're right. everywhere. Yeah. Every, I mean, you know, so at some point someone would hear a shot and they, they, I mean, it was, it was done in all innocence. People were trying to be helpful. They would hear a shot. They would look around, they would see a white van because it kind of, it stands out because it's bigger than other vehicles and it would draw their eye. And that happened, you know, so the first time that one person said, I saw a white panel van driving away after that, everyone went on high alert. And all of a sudden at every shooting, there'd be a white van. Well, there's white vans all over. Right. So that wasn't a surprise. It's like the old so, yellow cabs back in the day. We have them yeah, exactly. everywhere. See, you, you, exactly. you made a great point. Two things, actually. Number one, the white van, white construction vans 
Yeah, Ford, Chevy, and Dodge, the big three. Yep. Now we've got the other ones. They're all in it, and everybody uses them, and they're all mm-hmm. over the place. So, yeah, you got to chase down every lead because one of the unique things about this case, and you mentioned it earlier, when we do homicide investigations, it's almost always someone the victim knows or someone they're close to. So you work the scene out and you clear people based on evidence. When you have this Beltway sniper, you said something. There's no common thread with the victims. They don't look alike. They're not the same gender. They're not the same race. They're not the same religion. And it seems to be random. And it truly was at random. So it makes it that any, any kind of stranger on stranger homicide is really hard to solve. It really is. And so that's why, you know, when we're trying desperately to see what's in common and the and people start noticing the white van, it just took on a life of its own. And so um, what happened is and how it sort of it really became a real nightmare was actually at the Fairfax County case. So when the the woman was shot in the the parking lot of, you know, like a hardware store in Fairfax County, when she was shot, very soon after, I mean, everybody just descended. I mean, just, it was just remarkable. All of the public and the media and everything like that. And um, a couple of like really interesting kind of human nature side stories. I'll, I'll tell you if we have if we have time. But the main one that I wanted to get to was the white van situation, because there were a couple of people. One of them was a guy who um, said that he saw the shooter. He saw the white van. I was trying to keep him away from the reporters because we wanted to try to take his statement, but you could not get in this, get in between him. He kept running to the reporters. He wanted to have his moment, you know, and he kept, he kept talking to them. And I was, I was, and the reporters were getting angry with me because I'm kind of interfering while they're trying to interview this guy. And I'm like, no, we need to debrief him because we've got to try to find this, you know, whoever the shooter is, we need this information. It was, it was becoming very tense. And um, he was talking about that, you know, he saw the gun, he saw the rifle, he saw the shooter, he described all these things. And um, so the reporters then, you know, they would get a statement from him, they'd come running over to me, and I would not confirm any of what he was saying. And they were, some of them were just, you know, really getting upset and raising their voices and like how dare you not tell us because people are getting killed and you are withholding information and it is on your head if more people die because you are refusing to to confirm this information and you won't tell it to us and you won't you know um make sure that everybody knows what to look for and all that so that's that was what happened that day Turns out, within, I would say probably within that night, we were able to get to the bottom of it. The guy was well known to police. Uh-huh. I knew he you were going to say that. I uh-huh. knew you were going to say that. The, he no, was, what's the old saying? We reached out for leads. The good news is we got leads. The bad news is we got leads and we got to chase them all down. Oh, this guy was was just full of misinformation. First of all, he said he saw the rifle and it was an AK-74, <laughs> which, yeah, exactly. You see what I mean? And I'm not Doesn't a ballistics really, expert, but I know there's no I know. such thing. 
Right. Well, I mean, it was some kind of like a Russian kind of rifle. I don't know what it was. Anyway, he was all confused. Um, I think he may have been under the influence at the time he was talking. That's not surprising um, either, is it? Let's be honest. Uh huh. Yeah. Well, yeah. He was. How shall we say this? Um, a frequent flyer. Yeah. Um, with our department, um, he had been a guest of the county a few times. Maybe that's another way to put it. But anyway, um, so he ended up being charged actually, ultimately with false report You're because kidding me. he gave I am not he that gave almost never so happens. much I know but but it was so detrimental and it was so problematic and on top of that it was like we were trying to make sure the public understood because by that point then we had to go out the next day and and I was the lucky one who was like selected to go out and do a media briefing explaining that this was all you know, wrong. And that, and so I think, I think that part of the decision-making process was we needed to make sure that first of all, we didn't want anyone else doing it. And second of all, we wanted it to be crystal clear that this was not valid information that had been put out to the public the day before. So we, I mean, I think that was part of the whole, the whole process. It of, was, of it was truly like a, a feeding frenzy when the white van and people remember back when the white van information came out, it was on every news outlet and yes, they, they would talk yes. about it nonstop. See, this is the early yes. days of the 24 hour cable news people. And, <laughs> and when they have something to talk about, they're going to fill it with that. And if it gets eyeballs, they are going to lead with it all the time. One of the things you said that is really important, I believe, you were picked to go out and dispute the white van thing. And here's what I would say right away. And I, I, mm-hmm. I retired as a, as a sergeant. There's certain people you look at him and go, ain't no way I'm putting him in front of a microphone. And I'm that kind of guy. And I would say, <laughs> who draws a short straw? Let's pick Isabella because no one wants to attack her. Was that part of the reason why you think... Oh, I think it's just because I was in charge of the, of the <laughs> PIO. Well, usually, usually it's the, 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 the new person that gets voluntold to do that. It's not usually the, the, the boss. I appreciate you doing that. We're talking with Isabella Maldonado. Isabella, thank you for your service. She's a retired captain from the Fairfax County, Virginia Police Department. She retired as commander of special investigations of forensics, which we're not going to have time to talk about today, but we will some other time. Uh, She was a public information officer lieutenant during the Beltway Snipers' reign of terror. When we return, we're going to talk about how they're captured and all the books she's written and what her mission is today. This is Law Enforcement Today's show. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Be sure to check out our great podcast on hefepods.com. That's spelled J-E-F-E pods.com. You'll find an ever-growing selection of shows, some of which are hosted by your favorite radio personalities, from popular English language shows to the hard-to-find Spanish language shows. Check out the newest episodes of Taylor's Table, the Haunting or Not podcast, and more. They can all be found at hefepods.com. That's J-E-F-E pods.com. And be sure to tell a friend or two or three. This is Law Enforcement Today's show. I'm John J. Wiley, retired Baltimore police sergeant, and I am joined by 
Isabella Maldonado. She's a retired captain from the Fairfax, Virginia Police Department. And she was the public information officer, head of that unit as lieutenant during the Beltway Snipers Reign of Terror. By the way, she's written many books. Go to her website, IsabellaMaldonado.com, and you'll find them there. We'll talk about that a little bit more later on. We, we left, we were talking about the white van and how flawed that information was and how crazy the news media went with it. And everybody, they had every police between Richmond, actually probably to North Carolina, all the way to north of Baltimore looking for white vans. And at some point, that was proven to be wrong and not the right information. I know why police don't want to give that information. No one wants to be the one who ruins a good case. So you got to be very careful with giving out specifics. And, and the, the white van was one. But at some point, investigators became aware that they were driving and they had a specially equipped blue Chevrolet Caprice. That's what they were using. Am I correct? Yeah, it was it was much later on. And they actually had one of the reasons why no one could spot them is that the trunk had been converted into a sniper's nest. So um, the the younger of the two, uh, whose name is Lee Boyd Malvo, the adult was John Allen Muhammad. But um, so Malvo, the boy, uh, I believe he was 12 at the time, he would be able to lay like they'd lay down the back seat and he'd be able to lay in the um, trunk and then there'd be like a hole in through that would he would be able to poke the rifle out. They were using a and he'd be able to poke the rifle out and he would be able to take the shots. And that was one of the reasons it was so incredibly effective because, you know, you would never think of that as a, as a mobile shooting platform, but that's exactly what it was. No, and they were pretty, they were everywhere at the time as well, because a lot of police departments were using, a lot of taxi companies were using. Now, granted, mm-hmm. they weren't blue or that kind of color, but it's not a type of vehicle at that time that would stand out. No, no, it, it blended in extremely well. And one of the things that happens, and I, I am being a little snarky here, when we talk about the Oklahoma City bombing, uh, the Timothy McVeigh was captured by a state trooper, I believe it was. He got pulled over for a random mm-hmm. traffic stop for nothing serious. Now, many cases are solved that way by traffic stops. How did the investigators become aware of the blue Chevrolet? Well, the the blue Chevrolet came about later on and actually one of the things that did happen is I, I mentioned how you know the the media was very upset at first that I wasn't confirming the white van thing and then when it turned out that it was the blue Chevy some of the same reporters were howling that you know um, that I didn't say something about the, the blue Chevy but we didn't know that really until it was much later on and then when they were captured they had fallen asleep you know and that was kind of, they were just exhausted after after doing so many things but One of the unique things that I did want to talk about that has to do with being a PIO there, one of the reasons that it was very challenging to put out information was because you were speaking to three different audiences at the same time. You wanted to put out information to the public in order to help people to try to be safer. So you wanted to put out as much information as you could so they could take precautions. On the other hand, the prosecutor's office would be breathing down your neck because they're like, you know, don't you dare give all this information away. We're going to need it for prosecution when we eventually arrest these people. 
Meanwhile, at the same time, you are speaking to the killers. And in this particular case, John Allen Muhammad later, and he talked about this, he really was paying very close attention to everything on the media. He was listening to the radio. He would, if, whenever he could get near a TV, he would be watching on TV. He'd watch all the news. He sent in communications to media outlets, and he would leave um, weird notes and things at the scenes. He would require Chief Charles Moose to say bizarre coded messages during the press conferences because he enjoyed um, forcing him to do it. And he put Moose in an impossible situation. And I still remember um, Chief Moose was exhausted from, you know, total lack of sleep. And there was one point where Muhammad said, if you don't say this weird, funky message, I'm going to shoot a child. And it was a horrible situation. You can imagine, put yourself in those shoes. Do you do what the killer wants you to do? Um, because then you're letting him jerk you around, or do you not do it, and then a child gets shot, and then you have to live with that. Ultimately, um, it was, you know, all of the different agencies gave different advice, but they, they told the chief, you know, it's your call, right. and he decided that he couldn't live with it if, if a child got shot because he wouldn't play along, so he did say that. We, it was something about a duck going around a tree. I forget what it was. I don't remember what it, it was, was either, but I, I probably would have done the same thing because you know i gotta sleep with myself at night and i gotta wake up and look myself in the mirror and that's what he had to do that's what you had to do and ultimately every police i know goes out there with the best intention to do the best job possible and unfortunately from time to time sometimes you get stuck in really bad situations where there's no happy ending there's no hollywood endings that are like oh everything's great that wasn't the case this yeah there was justice served if I remember correctly, they did fall asleep at a rest stop. I think it was in Maryland. Yeah, they and did. That's where it got apprehended. Uh, it was in Virginia. Virginia it was okay. in Virginia. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm just glad and they it did. It was like with Fredericksburg. Yeah. When they, yeah. in the older one, it was he executed? Yeah. Um, yes. And the younger one was not because um, he just, he was so young at the time right. and they thought about it and actually was prosecuted in Fairfax County. They decided to go with our case. Um, and part of the reason was they felt like we had a strong ability to prosecute and the death penalty. Right. So that's different than what was that, going on. I don't fault anybody for their decision making on that one. And by the, it's pretty common to charge them on one case and in case there is a mistrial or not guilty, then yeah. you've got the other cases you can always go to trial on. So you start with your strongest Absolutely. first. I want to transition. Yeah. You, mm-hmm. After some time, either before retiring or right after retiring, you started writing books. you got like nine or ten of them, don't you? <laughs> I have. Actually, I'm working on the eighth one. Um, actually, the eighth and ninth. I'm actually There's working no on two at the you, same time. There? So, yeah, right. Well, it was it was interesting because the whole time as as a cop, I was I loved reading crime fiction and I was very much interested in it. And I always knew I wanted to write. And actually, the Beltway Sniper case was something that inspired what has been a book that has just sort of just gotten all kinds of attention all over the world. I wrote a book and it is it's a fictional book. Um, about a serial killer, and it's not. It, when I say it was inspired by this by the sniper case, it's not a sniper. But what I got from it was, if 
the real sniper case, they did involve the media and they terrorized the public. And I thought, well, if that were to happen today, how would you do that? And the answer was social media. So in the, I wrote a book called The Cipher, and in that book, um, um, my fictionalized uh, villain ends up using social media to terrorize the entire country, but I was able to sort of tap into that feeling of, of panic and everybody rushing around and all that, and it ended up becoming a, a bestseller. It's, been, it's now been published in 23 languages around the world, and they are, it's in development to become a movie That's- that's phenomenal. Yeah. Hey, I got to say yeah, this Jay other Lo- thing too is <laughs> people love to st- Hollywood loves to stereotype police, and it's never never positive. But one of the, the ones they get the worst are, are female officers, and uh-huh. I, I've been working with them since I started in 1980. And uh, by the <laughs> way, I want people to understand something: we may look the same, wear the same uniform, but we're not. We had uh-huh. gays, we had lesbians, we had every walk of life you can imagine in police work, uh, but. I want to tip a hat to you for your job as a police, but also for writing novels that have strong leads, that have strong Mm -hmm. leading characters that happen to be female, which I think is phenomenal. I thought there was a real crying need for it, and um, I wanted to write a a strong Latina law enforcement officer, and I'm I'm so honored that Jennifer Lopez, the J-Lo, is going to star in the 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 movie. Yeah, Jayla, Jenny from the block. <laughs> We're almost exactly. out of time. Your website, yeah. real quickly, where can people get your yeah. books and get more information about you? Well, probably the, the best thing to do is to is to go to my website because there's like, um, you can look at the about page. It'll show there's a picture of me in my police uniform shortly before I retired. And there's um, other other pictures as well with all the books and the person that you can see, read my blogs where I do. I actually did a blog about the sniper case, you know, a while back, but you can look it up and, you know, see what I have to say about and it. And that is and, um, IsabellaMaldonado.com. Yeah, Isabella, thanks for being guest on the show. Yeah. Very much appreciate it. I love being here. I'd like to thank our guests so much for coming on the Law Enforcement Today radio show. The Law Enforcement Today radio show is a nationally syndicated radio show broadcast on numerous stations once a week and growing. If you enjoyed the podcast version of the show, please do me a big favor. Tell a friend. I'll be back in just a couple days with a brand new episode of the Law Enforcement Today radio show and podcast. Until then, this is John J. Wiley. See ya.